You don't have to be a rocket scientist to help realize a mission to Mars. Become an agent of innovation with Invesco QQQ. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Invesco Distributors, Inc. You don't have to be a machine learning engineer to help make the future a smarter place. Become an agent of innovation with Invesco QQQ. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Welcome to Trillions. I'm Joel Weber. And I'm Eric Valchunas. Eric, it's great to be back in the booth with you. I was away for a second. <laughs> Things didn't go so well. Yeah, I had to take over your role, and uh, it was harder than it looks. I got, I got to give you credit. I, I don't think I'm going to mock you anymore after you go on what I call the downward spiral, especially in the uh, the closeouts. That First we of all, those are incredibly rare. Yeah, and you make a bigger deal of them than they are. But you know, it's great to be back. <laughs> I, I miss, I miss Likewise. my Tony Romo. How was China? Uh, you know, there's a the the conference, this Bloomberg New Economy Forum that we do is really interesting. Uh, huge uh, turnout, some really significant people, and a lot of interesting topics that came up. So it was an interesting place to go, especially right now and in the midst of all the things that are happening in the world. I thought it was really interesting. And coming back though, I really wanted to have a holiday party. So this episode of the podcast, we said, why don't we talk to our friends over at the What Goes Up podcast, also here at Bloomberg, which is co-hosted by Sarah Ponzik and Mike Regan. So we decided let's bring them on and then let's actually like talk about what's gone up this year. Yeah. The past couple of our podcast episodes have been a little wonky, non-transparent, active, direct indexing platform. So we thought it's December. Let's wrap up what happened in the market, where people are investing. And that's their specialty. So um, we thought we'd look at what went up and what might go up next year. What kind of uh, beverages do you serve at holiday parties? I don't really have I have some two young kids. So I parties are like... Nothing too crazy. I picture Eric serving ETFs at his holiday party. Like, <laughs> here's some TVix for you, <laughs> Uncle Joe. Or metaphorically, uh, TVix would be like grain alcohol. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. like he sets yes. out the different alcohols, yeah. each with a sign. Okay. It's a spy, yeah. pretty easy, yeah. goes down well. Yeah, here's Generic. some. Yeah, here's some Odul's, a little uh, vu for you. <laughs> <laughs> You can't handle anything, you know. So. I want some 3x leveraged ETFs. Uh, my question for you: I'm going to turn the tables already. Sure. I'm, I'm used to asking Eric the questions like <laughs> ten times a day over the Instant Messenger. But why aren't triple X levered ETFs the biggest thing in the world? If you're going to be a bull on the market, go big or go home, right? I'm looking at the the triple Q. How do you how do the cool ETF guys call it the triple Q or the TQQQ? Um, the triple Qs or the Q, uh, QQQ? Q, yeah, yeah. QQ. They but, used to call it the cubes back in the day when it was four. But I like the TQQQ. Yeah, so that's the triple leveraged version of it, which I think is up like four thousand percent since it for, came out for the decade. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The the problem with leverage, um, well, first of all, they do have a good audience, but there's um, the way they rebalance every day because when new people come in, they need to make sure their leverage is reset for that day. And that resetting can cause some corrosion. And so your, your triple leveraged uh, it doesn't exactly work in the long term. And that's why the 3x and negative 3x can be both down over a year. But if something goes up in a nice direction, you get a compounding effect. And actually, you can get four or five times. But it's a very um, weird market that has really got some uh, wacky math. Yeah. But other than that, I, I agree with you. I think um, you know. I think if you talk to those companies, half their investors are hardcore traders, small hedge fund types, and half are retail day traders. Like I think the new day trader uses those kind of things. Uh, but you can tell from the volume they're probably trading them short term, which they should. 
This time on Trillions, what went up? What else went up? So I want to start with the S&P 500 because it's relentless. And, you know, I call 2017 the utopia year. But I think that year the market was up, what, 22%, something like that. It's up more this year. So are we like beyond utopia? Like 25% beyond utopia. isn't crazy, but it doesn't quite feel like it, does it? I'm going to uh, let me read you a little bit from this this uh, column I, I edited by our colleague uh, Yi Shi. Literally everything went up in, two, in this year, 2019. What year is it again? 2019. I'm still writing 1998 on my checks. <laughs> good still year. Checks, good. So, so, right, right, right. I know you balance that checkbook. Me. I know. I yeah. know. Give it away my age. So he basically looked at every major asset class. Literally, not only did everything go up, but everything went up way more than the average gains over the last year. And I mean, I'm talking everything from your havens, treasuries up more than average, EM debt, uh, high yield, gold, everything. So I don't know. Uh, to be honest, I don't know what the takeaway is from that other than there's just a whole lot of money chasing returns this year. So I, I have one theory on it, which is, an, and Sarah, you correct me if I'm wrong. For the most part of the year, the last month is an exception because I think people just went all in bullish recently. But for the first up through Halloween, I felt that there was a Trump trade developing, which is I'm going to just hang on to equities. I'm not going to sell them, but I'm going to buy gold, treasuries or low vol because Trump's Twitter feed bothers me a little bit. I'm a little nervous. And 2018 just happened, and I'm still a little spooked from that. So I think that's why you might have had everything go up, because people didn't want to sell equities because the Fed was there, but they also felt nervous, so they bought these other things. For the most part, I would agree. I mean, you think about the first half of the year, there were still a lot of nervousness out there. There were a lot of concerns out there. And that's why even within the equity market for months, you saw that defensive trade really take off. You see people piling into consumer staples. You saw people piling into utilities, real estate, also because of the bond proxy side of those trades. I mean, yields coming down to 1.5% this year. You asked people last December in the beginning what they would have thought yields were going to do. I highly doubt anyone really would have told you that yields were going to drop from 325 uh, to one and a half on the 10 year. So that really drove the trade for a while. But now in the back half of the year, the last couple months or so, now people are starting to question if a lot of that was way overdone. So you have started to see uh, some faults in the bond trades. You've seen it in gold as well. Uh, however, because they had such a strong run up in the beginning of the year, they're still up an extreme amount. And all year long, you've just had risk assets and equities rebounding as well. But you think about the 25% return for the S&P. A lot of people, when you say year to date, the S&P's up 25%, they're going to say, wait, wait, wait. But if you look back towards the beginning of December, uh, it's not quite that high. You have to really take into account the drop, the meltdown that we did see at the end of last year. Yeah, that, it's a, it was a really weird phenomenon, this roaring bull market being led by defensives. I don't. I can't remember a time when I've seen that. You know, you saw what looked like kind of textbook what they would call crowded trades and those staples and utilities. I mean, some the valuations just going through the roof for these really defensive sectors. So, 
a, a strange year for sure. And lately I've started to see some research too, looking at the latest rally that we have seen, talking about the proverbial or really scary blow off top that you get before a bear market or that you get before a recession. Uh, some shops pointing out that as of the end of November, if you had looked at stocks on a one, two, four, all the way through 52 week basis, the return was positive on all of them saying that, okay, maybe this is it. But you continue to have investors, the majority I speak with, say, you think about the caution that is out there, that being the makeup of what's driven returns for a decent amount of the year, uh, but also flows too. If you look at so far this year, fixed income ETFs have taken in more than equity ETFs for the first time since 2009. And a lot of people keep talking about this cash on the sideline, uh, which I find interesting. Uh, yes, you can look at mutual fund outflows. Uh, there certainly is a lot of caution out there. But Ned Davis has another way of looking at it, uh, which I've kind of taken to. And they look at cash actually as a percentage of total market cap. Because if you look at the absolute level of cash right now on the sidelines or cash and money markets, then sure, it's high. Uh, But if you actually look at it relative to market cap, because obviously there's a lot more value in the markets right now as a whole since 2009, it's actually pretty low, Uh, which makes you think, sure, on an absolute level, there's a lot of cash on the sidelines, but not actually relative to the actual market cap out there. And you know, one headline that I picked some headlines out that you guys wrote that you're talking about that I think captured the year is, uh, here it is, sick with recession fever, investors make Powell their drug. (laughs) And to me, um, I felt like the Fed has been the drug for 10 years. 2018 was a year we saw the patient off the drug and it spazzed out. Everything went down. Like that was the year everything went down. But then beginning of this year, Powell came out, reassured markets. Trump's pressure on him, I think, is part of the deal. Um, But it seems like recession, impeachment, I track the mentions of these words, and they spike up. And they're scary words, especially recession. But spy volume never really gets shaken, which is a fear gauge I use. Nobody's really doing much. I think there's uh, headlines and sentiment gets crazy for a week here and there. But people just, I guess, it all comes back to the Fed being their drug. As long as they get that hit, um, everything else will be short-lived. And is that really the case? And how does this end? I think... Something that people are going to be studying for years is what happened in the repo market this year and how the Fed kind of came in to to rescue, uh, save the day by holding these auctions, uh, repo auctions. Now, everyone's saying it's not quantitative easing. It's not quantitative easing. Okay, but the Fed expanded their balance sheet by more than a quarter trillion dollars uh, within a few months. And a big reason why I think you have to assume they did that is because here we are we're running uh, a, a growing economy, and yet we're blowing out the, the federal budget deficit to a trillion dollars a year. Everyone got a tax cut. Corporations got a tax cut. So there is all this money chasing all sorts of assets around right now, uh, a- extra money. So yes, the Fed did reverse course on rates and uh, you know started lowering rates. That's one part of it. But I, I would not discount the effect of their moves in the repo market because they kept by keeping those uh, treasury bill rates low, um, you uninvert the yield curve. Uh, so I mean, you, people all, stop worrying about that. All this would qualify under the Fed has the markets back. Yeah. 
Yeah, and, absolutely. And I would say even going into next year. And Trump wants the Fed to have the markets back. Right. Uh, this is all speculation, but there were a lot of people throwing around the idea that a few weeks ago when Powell met with Mnuchin and Trump, that maybe that was something they discussed. If they decide to pull the plug on the trade war or do something unexpected, will the Fed have the markets back? And I've spoken to a couple people, including the head of asset allocation uh, this week over for Pacific Life Investments, who said that's part of the reason that we are seeing this end of year rally continue. I spoke with another investor uh, at another point this week who said that he sees the possibility that the Fed could actually cut rates in the first quarter of next year. Also part of the reason that the market is continuing to gain, not because they think we're going to fall into a recession, but because if something unexpected does happen on the trade front, or if you do continue to see some deterioration in growth, but that's not horrible. Well, the Fed has your back, and the Fed put is still there. The Powell put is still there, and that's part of the reason we continue to see this risk on attitude. There's people on Twitter, and they're very funny. They'll see something like I heard today, like somebody taped a banana to a wall, and it sold at an art exhibit for like one hundred twenty-five thousand dollars. <laughs> Unbelievable! And the person will just say, "Fed definitely has to cut rates," <laughs> yeah, right. or "S and P hits all-time high. Fed has to cut rates." <laughs> They're making fun of like it's the best market, all-time highs all the time. Yet Trump's on the Fed to cut rates, and I kind of get it. I mean, it's almost become a joke. Sarah, you mentioned something uh, about growth and value a second ago. Can we dwell on that for a little bit? Because this has be- actually been a kind of a, a remarkable year for value of all things. So I'd say over the last couple months, if you still look uh, over the year, growth, not so much in ETF flows because we started have started to see a lot of ETF flows going into not so much just value funds, but like low volatility funds, dividend funds, also those bond proxy areas of the market. Uh, but if you look at performance, I mean, gross had a pretty stellar year from the beginning of the year as well. But what happened and my colleague Luke Kawa uh, wrote about it very, very early on after uh, the missteps that happened with WeWork. And he called it the WeWork flu, the idea that all of a sudden people are going to start actually caring about profits again and stop throwing money at companies that just have ha- have very high growth prospects. And we did see that play out for quite a while. We saw it happen uh, with certain companies after earnings. Twitter comes to mind, for example. Um, But then we saw, if I focus on software companies as one portion of growth, we saw software start to perform pretty well again. One thing in there is like WeWork being classified as a tech company, which everybody came back to reality. Well, everything's a tech company. Yeah, exactly. uh, Can I just go over this one headline that is totally on this topic? I think, uh, who wrote it? I think uh, Sarah did. This is, um, after latest IPO setbacks, there's unicorn blood on the streets. Oh, that was that was an early <laughs> early story. Um, that was a business week. Yes, story. it was for business. Yeah, that week. was me. But, but people get Sarah. Oh, no, no, that was mine. No, no problem. <laughs> See, yeah. but you the know. problem is, I she I steals I my shine no, all the time. I wasn't even aware because I've probably written something. You were faking it pretty good. That. You're like, yeah, that one was. Yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah. that was a story. You know, when we um, uh, at Business Week were thinking about the year, we did a cover story back in like March, I think, right as Uber uh, basically listed and IPO that we kind of wanted to mark that moment. And we did a cover that had um, that was by both of these guys, uh, both Mike and Sarah, about um, the moment of private companies leaving Matt Levine, what Matt Levine calls the enchanted forest of the private markets for the public markets. And we marked that moment with a cover story. That had a instead of a deer crossing a road, it was a unicorn. Um, 
which I thought was fitting because, you know, all deer get hit by cars all the time. And like some of these companies are not going to make it to the other side of the road. Uh, and they and they actually, you know, for a long time, a lot of them have struggled. And I think we'll continue to see them struggle, Uber being one of, one of those examples. But later on in the year, we came back to it with another story, which was how bloody this this has been for all these companies, right? And that really, that headline relates exactly to that theme because, man, we saw a bloodbath for a while. And um, just, I want to go back to growth and value because I feel like, and, and Mike will get this because he's a Sixers fan, <laughs> value is like when ben, ben Simmons hitting a jump shot because he's so bad. So he hit a three-pointer and the place went crazy <laughs> yeah. like they won the championship. Value was up 22% this year. Growth was up 30. Yeah. Like, just because value didn't lose by more, it's like a big year for value. I know what you mean. It seems like value had its big year, well, but it still trailed the market and it still lost to growth again. Well, so it's just, and it's relative to its, it's past relative, performance. It's relative, yes. Because its past performance has been. I think value gets coddled a little bit because people, like, it's so bad. I thought you were going to go with the Markel Fultz example <laughs> of uh, Orlando getting, <laughs> stepping up the biggest value stock in the NBA history. Um, yeah, I, I I was actually you know, Joel has this list for business we call the Jealousy List, uh, and I was you know scrambling around. It's looking, bigger than me. It's the Business Week. It's the Jealousy Business Week yeah. list, and and forthcoming still. Joel informed me he was looking for uh, submissions to this after the deadline already. So I'm go scrambling around looking looking for examples. And Josh Brown, you know the Reformed Broker blog had a really what I thought I I didn't submit it because and I'll explain why, but it definitely an honorable mention because. He, it's before the value rotation started, and he's talking, he basically tries to explain why growth is it, why it has been for the last decade, and he does this great job of it, you know, I actually have it in front of me, he's like, an analysis of book value captures things like plant and equipment and facilities and hard money, real assets that corporations have managed to accumulate over their lifetimes. We say it in an era of cheap, free money you don't value those things anymore because they're depreciating assets, obviously. So what do you value? You value this recurring revenue stream that you get from from the dot-com, you know, your your uh, Googles and your Facebooks and that's that sort of thing. But he makes the point, I might be calling the top here of growth versus value. <laughs> <laughs> you know, very self-aware. But he, And the reason I didn't submit it is because he does give WeWork as an example of why growth, everyone, everyone loves growth. But I will go out on a limb and say... Uh, the story is still true. I think growth is perennially, perennially, perennially. <laughs> perennially? Yeah. This is why Sarah does <laughs> all of this. In. We'll We're halfway through the party. Perennially. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to just predict I don't think the, the value rotation is going to last forever. I mean, I think growth is is what investors want going forward. I Can think... you pull his O'Douls? O- <laughs> <laughs> he had too many T-Vixes. Uh, <laughs> no, I, I think it's an interesting take because... After we did see those couple weeks of immense value outperformance, all of a sudden, value managers or even people who aren't value managers but aren't growth managers are saying, okay, this is value's time. They've been underperforming for way too long. Uh, they've got to come back on that, top that at year, some point. Right. But they've said it so many times. A decade plus. But I, I mean, also Cliff find- Cliff Asnes actually came out and he, said it. Right. Yeah. So Cliff Asnes- 
he is known, he does not like to time the markets. And he actually did put out an entire research paper talking about, quote unquote, sinning a little and maybe timing the market a bit and saying this could be the time for value. But I find it interesting because in the beginning of the year or the past couple of years, when you talk to investors about the growth outperformance, they say the fact of the matter is we are in a low growth environment and that is when growth outperforms because people need to go look for growth. Well, if you think about the economic environment for next year, how is it any different with U.S. GDP expected to be 1.8%, sub 2% or around 2% at least? I mean, you're not saying that we have a very high growth environment that value should outperform in technically. Yeah. And I you know, I don't like to look at growth and value as sort of these separate asset classes. I think it's a matter of what stocks are considered value at any given time. And this year it was those very cyclical, you know, banks, financial companies, uh, material, commodity producers. And again, it's that that sense that everyone had sort of recession fever earlier in the year, and those stocks were just you know unloved to the point where they got ridiculously cheap in a lot of uh, cases on a relative basis. You know, cheap in a, in a in an expensive market, otherwise expensive market. So they're going to kind of mean revert back to a reasonable valuation. I don't know if it it necessarily signals this total regime shift where we're going to see a, a decade of value outperformance. We did, you know, 2009 was a good year for value. So I think if there's some kind of a sell-off, the, the rebound will be very good. Uh, by the way, interesting factoid on the, how growth and value can be blurry. Apple is in exactly 14 value ETFs and 14 growth ETFs. I know. I love that about that. Um, that so there's a lot of stocks that you, you know. Well, you just can't miss out on a stock that's up 70% this year. So you just got to put it, them in everything. It's both. <laughs> yeah. It looks in the mirror at itself and looks back again and <laughs> can't figure itself out. This podcast is brought to you by Invesco QQQ. What do all the greatest innovations have in common? Agents, people who participate in progress by supporting cutting-edge ideas. Invesco QQQ is a fund that allows you access to innovators of the NASDAQ 100 all-in-one fund. So you don't have to be an inventor to help create what's next to come. Anyone can become an agent of innovation with Invesco QQQ. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. There are risks when investing in ETFs, including possible loss of money. ETF risks are similar to those of stocks. Investments in the tech sector are subject to greater risk and more volatility than more diversified investments. The NASDAQ 100 index comprises the 100 largest non-financial companies on the NASDAQ. You can't invest directly into an index. Before investing, consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit Invesco.com for a prospectus containing this information. Read it carefully before investing. Invesco Distributors, Inc. At this time of year, there are a lot of different uh, investment firms that start having their 2020 Outlook events. And I was at one recently, and I've also been reading a lot of 2020 Outlooks, and it's unbelievable how many firms right now, for their expectations for 2020, if you're just talking about equities, uh, U.S. equities, you ask them if stocks are likely going to go up, they say yes, because stocks typically go up. You say, how much? Every single time, low to mid single digits. No one has high conviction about this rally that we saw this year really continuing on with the force uh, that we've seen it. And part of that is because this year you had such multiple expansion on the back of the Fed cutting rates, expectations for a trade deal. And now at this point, you really do need to get growth in profits. And JP Morgan Asset Management really dived into this in their outlook to 
help the market move higher. And even if we don't get those 10% EPS growth in the S&P 500 stocks uh, next year, that's fine. Uh, But you need to have some growth. And right now, that's the expectation. And can you talk about these calls? Um, You know, people out there, I don't know how many regular people read these calls, but they're in the financial media a lot. Goldman says this. And to me, it just seems like they packaged the last three or four months and then put the future tense on it. Like, it's kind of a cop-out. Like, nobody ever makes any really legitimate calls. Um, you know, the biggest one that I remind, was reminded of is in 2018, right, late 2018, J- Jamie Dimon of J.P. Morgan, who would know more than just about anybody, right, basically, didn't he make a rate call that they could go up to like 4.5% and For they the did the year. exact opposite? Um, how much are these calls just to fill content versus people trade off of them? You know, I think uh, when you look at those year-end targets uh, that that bank strategists put out, um, the intended audience for those things is us. Yes. It's the media, you know. <laughs> and you bite every time. Because who, it's like a juicy worm. It's because think right. about it. Who who really invests based on a December thirty first? Yeah, you got to You got to right. be done by that. <laughs> right. Come on. And off the record, I think a lot of them will confess that to us. But if you really dig into the the notes further and you get their their sort of sector calls and and their you know different stuff like that, I, there is value there. And and there's value, I think, in into knowing what Goldman is expecting, right? Um, and you know, if you can bring yourself to disagree with them, if your analysis says differently. Then you know to to know that you're betting against Goldman, I think gives you uh, you know to go against the consensus is kind of what everyone wants to do in Wall Street. You want to be that contrarian. Uh, so I don't know. I, I none of us have done sort of the the back test of all their calls and and tested them to see who's the most accurate uh, year over year. We we probably we should. should. That. Sorry, sorry. That's my do job. That. Sorry, do that. I can I can feel it coming. Report back to us. I can feel it coming. I, I feel like they're. But, like active managers tend to beat the uh, S and P. A third of them do. I feel like about a third of the calls are right. I feel like more are, you know, wrong than not. Um, but they provide context. They give you something to talk about. They, some, a lot of the data is very interesting. Um, they don't have to be right every time. But it would be cool to have their batting average. Yeah. Like a baseball player. Like this. This. This person who made this call is batting 100. Okay, well, we might not listen to that guy. Right, we can right. give him a ticker and then track it. Right. Yeah, <laughs> we should. I always feel bad for them with the, the year-end call. You know, it's like, imagine you're a weatherman, and they're like, all right, what's the forecast for next New Year's Day? You know, it's like, who knows? You know, cold. So <laughs> you I, know? I think where you get value, and I think even you'll read these outlooks, and a lot of them will be focused on the year ahead. So they'll be focused on 2020. But if you speak with the strategists actually behind the forecast and writing the forecast, they'll say to you, yes, this is our view on what's likely to happen in 2020, but many of them have much higher conviction further out. A lot of their investors are not just positioned for the year, so they want to have a sense on where things are going next year, but also in the future. And if you get the logistics of 2020 wrong, but you're still on the right trajectory for the next five, 10 years, then odds are, I mean, you're in a good place. Sarah, can you give me a call on U.S. equities next year? (laughs) <laughs> My own call? Why would you want that? <laughs> How about just the guess? I, just want, I, I want to hear. Yeah, let's just get it on paper right now. I yeah. predict the year will end with 30 stocks in the Dow Jones. And oh, the there we go. Radical. Oh, Book it. Yeah. You know what? By the end of the year, something's going to yeah. happen. It's going to be 29. Well, <laughs> it's funny. So I, we're doing a, pre, a, a big ETF event next week, and I'm giving my predictions. And they're all like this. I say inflows will happen. <laughs> uh, and then I'm like, and then at the last one is something will happen. It's very, it's very vague, but I do go into some things that are somewhat callish. But um, I, I, it's very tough to know the future. You've seen it happen. What you think is going to happen, the opposite does. 
Um, so mid to low single digits? <laughs> mid to low single digits. I would fit right in the general camp. <laughs> That's the safe the safe space. There was a... Because the, <laughs> so, there's a lot of people, they wouldn't call you all out at once. You know, it's the person who says market's going up 25% or down that is taking the real risk. Well, I, I'll tell you one. Uh, Cameron Kreiss, our macroman columnist, is one of the smartest guys I know. And uh, he's written a few times about... Now, valuations are high. It's very almost impossible to time a market based on valuations. They, they can keep going higher and surprise everyone. You, you know, you could approach dot-com valuations for all we know again. But what he said is it, the longer you look into the future, uh, the higher valuations are, the, the weaker the long-term returns are. And he's had a couple columns saying that both uh, bonds and equities, that 10-year horizon is pitiful right now because of the, the high valuations mm. in, in both. So I hate, hate to be the downer at the holiday party, but-, but uh, <laughs> Give him more duels. <laughs> I, I, I will add, in a recent research note, uh, Nick Colas, we had him as a guest on our podcast once. What's he, the name of that podcast again, sir? What goes up, for all of you who are not aware. <laughs> uh, but uh, Nick Colas over at Data Trick, he sent out a recent note, and the title was How to Make Smart Predictions. I'll read you what he writes. He says, for example, 90 years of S&P 500 return data shows the index gains an average of 11.4% a year, and the odds of a 20-plus percent gain are three times the chances of a 10% decline. So it's really difficult for someone to make a bearish bet on the S&P or just U.S. equities at large when history just tells you the odds are much higher for you to have a significant gain. Yeah. Right. Well, I mean, the market generally will give you about eight, nine percent. Right. That's what you'd expect. But it's been double and even more over the years. So I think that's what people are like. We're we're like kind of uh, over our due date for something that you know. We're... But then again, in 2018, the market was down. I think four or five percent if you include dividends, and it felt like we had gotten like killed. Like everybody was so miserable, and it almost seemed like um, it made me feel like a child that was spoiled. Like oh, you were down four percent. You've been up 250. So in these days when the market goes down 2 or 3%, it just seems like people freak out like it's okay. Like you're up 300 since the financial crisis. You're getting way more than you should. How much are just investors just too coddled? I think advisors try to do the best that they can for their own clients to tell them this is normal. It's actually okay if we get a bit of a drawdown, if we get some consolidation. Um But I will say that some advisors that I speak with, they tell me how their clients outwardly say to them, why shouldn't I just go buy the S&P 500 and ETF? It's cheaper and it always goes up. And it's something that's very difficult for them to try to explain because they try to show that they can add value, especially in volatile times. But for years, really this entire bull market, you would have been fine if you just bought a passive product. Well, that's um, Buffett's, we call it the Buffett ETF special. In his one of his letters, somebody said, what can I do as an individual investor? He's like, do what I'm doing in my will. 90% of my will is to go into a Vanguard index fund and then 10% is short-term treasury bonds. Um, and you know, if if that's what he says, and if you do it, that's um, you know a five basis point trade. I mean, my, that's how much it would cost. My will's going to say go into that triple levered QQQ, <laughs> man. right? Yeah, TQQQ. That's yours. Yeah, yeah. Death yeah. by TQQQ. And then ten percent TVX. I'm not messing around with unlevered. <laughs> so that's yes. actually a modest transition to another theme that we wanted to hit on, which is fixed income. Do you like what I did there? Yeah, I took treasuries and turned it into... We were going for triple leverage tech to fixed yeah. income. I mean, talk about a downer. Yeah, I know. <laughs> but, but it's on your list of things you wanted to talk about. Yeah. I mean, well, this gets in, is into rates. 
I mean, obviously, fixed income flows, you talked about a lot of that's a function of rates falling. Um, you know, d- look, you wrote an article, I have a headline here that I think was from Mike, which is, uh, this is how yields could go negative in the near future. Now, we've heard about negative yields overseas. Could that happen? Could we like turn into like a future Japan where, I mean, what's going on here with this? Before Mike gives his take, I've got to say, that was the title of our podcast. That wasn't... Yeah. Oh, yeah. was it? What podcast? I just went to your bio page and picked out headlines that kind of like just, yeah. you know, stood out. I, I love the uh, crossover, by the way. It's, this is like, it's like when Fonzie shows up on Laverne and Shirley. <laughs> yeah. <right? laughs> the Globetrotters land on Gilligan's Island. You have to define those shows now, by the way. You can't just say that. I know who Fonzie <laughs> is. Beyond that. Oh. Okay. Yeah, Sarah, Sarah's laughing politely here. Have you ever seen one episode of Gilligan's Island? No. Yeah, see, it's we're getting old, man. <laughs> it wasn't even, like, it was still, like... In all honesty. I've seen a hundred. It was, like, daytime TV when I stayed home on a yeah. sick day, and yeah. Not, yeah. Not, no longer. Okay, what was the question for Sarah again? <laughs> um, negative yields. Could we go there? Most people don't think that in the U.S. we're going to get negative rates. It's possible, and we had Lauren Goodwin on our podcast. She talked about how we could get there, and a large part of us getting there would be that the U.S. has to go into a recession and that the Fed uh, would be cutting rates lower. But many members of the Federal Reserve have come out and said that they have no interest at the moment in negative interest rates, and they don't see uh, that happening in the U.S. They don't want it to happen after seeing some of the repercussions that have happened in other uh, geographies, yeah, other locations of, of the world. Right. It's it's very, very difficult. And President Trump might say over and over and over again <laughs> that he would love negative interest rates. But I would say at the current standpoint, negative rates next year... Uh, very, very, very rare call. Well, and I think it's important to, to define what you mean by negative rates. We have seen T-bill rates go negative mm-hmm. uh, in the U.S. Many bank depositors out there, guess what? You're you're getting a negative rate on your savings, uh, especially if you use the ATM a lot and you're paying those ATM fees. They're easily going to overwhelm your 0.001% interest you're getting. So, you know, if you're talking about the, the Fed funds rate or the 10-year treasury, yeah, I don't I don't see it either. But uh, again, if the president wants it, sometimes, uh, you know, the bully pulpit is a, is a big thing. But I do think there's a bit of confusion over where, say, you just focus on the 10-year, where the 10-year goes from here. We've been in this range between one and a half to like 1.9% for much of the year. Uh, and a lot of calls I've seen either put it a tiny bit above that range, maybe a little bit above 2% or say for most of the year, the fact is we're going to be range bound because at this point in time, the Fed has said that they are on hold. Who knows what will happen next year? Things can be very different. We know how things changed from last year. Uh, But if the Fed is truly on hold, what's the driver that takes the 10-year out of that 1.5 to really 2% range? Well, I'll go over that, which is the bully pulpit. I think Trump is going to run on the S&P at all-time highs. That's one of his like four pillar campaign so he has, what, 11, 12 months to run on that? And I think if you need low rates for that to happen, um, which brings me to the election, right? You wrote a story which resonated with me. Obama will kill stock market. No, Trump will. No, Warren will. <laughs> and this is always the politics and the presidency. We had um, our two dads on one time, and my dad, he actually bought TVIX because he asked me what will go up the most when the stock market crashes because he thought Hillary would win and the market would crash. So he got both wrong. <laughs> and then he forgot to sell TVIX, which is another adding insult to injury, which I won't go into that. But um, I think a lot of people th- kind of think the politics are connected to the market. It does feel like Trump has a lot of sway over the market. Can you talk about 
What if Trump d- loses and Warren wins? L- that scenario, what are people saying? Do you think that's going to be something that could shock the market into a massive sell-off? If Trump wins? Loses. If Trump loses and Warren so wins. So like a Warren or Bernie. Okay, so I'll tell you right away that that story, we got a lot of praise on it. We also got a lot of backlash <laughs> on it, depending on what many readers political beliefs are or where they stand. Uh, there's multiple people who view that story as pretty accurate. The idea that in the past, uh, pundits, strategists always make forecasts on what the market is going to do if a certain candidate wins. Uh, the reality being that typically the president actually doesn't have as much control over the entire economy or the stock market as some might think. Uh, now, if you think about President Trump versus an Elizabeth Warren or a Bernie Sanders, for example, there are a lot of people out there who have said that, oh, if Warren wins, the market will crash 25%. Uh, she's a socialist. She doesn't care about the stock market. Uh, but it really depends on which policies actually will make it through uh, and actually get imposed. Because, I mean, in the lead up to the election, you can talk all you want about health care or breaking up big tech. And recently, she did propose this new bill that's going to try to roll back some mega mergers. Yeah, that'll absolutely affect certain stocks if they are imposed, if it actually happens. Uh, But the problem is a lot of these uh, really extremist policies, I wouldn't say it's a problem, they don't actually get through as advertised during the election, especially uh, if you have a A Senate and a divided divided Congress. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Anyone who bought uh, shares of wall building stocks, for example, might be uh, be able to (laughs) talk about that this year. One thing under Obama, which was fascinating to me, is that I read an article. It was in like Yahoo or something around 2000. And uh, when did he win? 2008. Mm -hmm. So 2007, it said... Um, how to play the Obama presidency, and it was basically like buy a bunch of clean energy. Clean energy stocks were flat. Defense and banks doubled the market. I mean, it makes no sense sometimes. Well, that's also what I find interesting. And a lot of people talking about Warren, people were pointing to healthcare, obviously, which was underperforming for, for part of the year. No one was really bringing up energy, uh, which is pretty big part of her platform. So it was interesting. Yeah, it, it's a very ambitious platform that uh, I, I agree. I don't think uh, the real drastic stuff will ever see the light of day. We'll, we'll make it through Congress. That said, I, I look, I could see some turbulence. Uh, oh, yeah. It, come the primaries, if she starts taking the lead, I, I, you know, I do think we'll see some volatility in the markets for sure. So we've spent a lot of time being U.S. centric. Let's like talk about something other than the U.S., maybe emerging markets. So China? Brazil. I'll stick with China. How about mm-hmm. that? Uh, I'd say if you, if you think about emerging markets and even China, it's almost part of the value trade. The idea that what's underperformed the last decade is going to eventually have to turn and it's going to have its moment in the sun. But a big part of uh, the China trade is everything going on with U.S.-China trade negotiations. You made it about the U.S. again. Oh, well, I'm not, just give me a second. Give me a second. What I'm going to say is, yes, the U.S. comes into it. But the idea being that if this really does get resolved, that China should perform better than the U.S. likely. That That's a very popular take. For emerging markets, what you're going to need to see largely is you're eventually going to see weakness in the dollar. And there are a good amount of people who do believe that we will see weakness in the dollar bringing it back to the U.S. once again. Uh, but the dollar is a really big factor when it comes to emerging market returns. Yeah. And since you mentioned Brazil, I did notice a lot of banks are very bullish on Brazil uh, going into 2020. Um 
I don't know. Because that. they finally had pension reform? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> only, right. Only took a couple years? Yeah. Well, well, that's the thing, though, is the, the politics in LATAM is is pretty dicey right now. Extremely dicey. Well, it seems yeah. like uh, these single countries, as long as the person, because I've seen it in ETFs, if the person that's looking like they're going to win is a very right-leaning pro-business, like it happened with Moti in India, the Brazil guy, yeah. mm-hmm. um, you'll see that thing starts to go up. So I always say that- But then there's often a letdown after the- Absolutely, the, uh, yeah. yeah. There's a buildup. It's, I saw the news type of thing. Argentina. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I'm not saying, but you definitely tend to see that or um, the opposite can happen. If somebody's coming in that's going to really just go the other direction, you'll see it sell off. Okay, so this is a favorite question that we like to ask people. I haven't asked it for a while. I'm a little scared. Uh, Sarah, what is your favorite ETF ticker? Moo. Uh, Moo? Yeah, that's, that's a pretty that's good a, one. It's a popular one. Yeah. Yeah. Mike? There's a gold ETF that's like Nugs. Nugget. Yeah. N-U-G-T. It's a triple leverage. Back to your triple right. leverage. <laughs> Yeah, triple leverage gold it miners. Could have gone marijuana. Bring, it, bring you, it back on Brad. Yeah, it, you, should, it should be. It's, it's, it's a toss up. Gold or marijuana? What is it? There's a weed ETF, right? Yes. yes. Weed ETF. I'm going to switch to the weed Toke. ETF. Toke. Toke. Toke is uh, instant Mount Rushmore level, in my opinion. Uh, UFOs up there. By the way, Nugget, the, UFO. Standard, the standard deviation on Nugget is 90. 90%. Wow. Uh, just for perspective, I, I can tell you what SPY is. I think it's probably like. Yeah, seventeen. So nugget, how, nugget, <laughs> nugget should come with the Xanax. I, I think. love I how said it. I love how triple levered products are so ingrained in Mike that he picked a triple levered ticker without even knowing it. <laughs> that's right. It. That's right. I, know. No, I want to make all the ETF listeners just like get streaming mad. You all like kind of like pretend that these triple levered products don't exist. Listen, Have you noticed that? It's, it's like they're like the, the, we, it's, we we've, we've done this on the show before. No, no, it's, I, it's I like a, where I he's going like a, because it's a, it's a great topic. There's a lot of virtue signaling on triple leverage. People are like, "How are these things right. existing?" Right. Oh, yeah, I'm all hoity-toity finding. You're going the other direction. You're saying, "How are these things not po- more popular?" <laughs> right, I love them. Right. I think you're just being more honest. Four thousand yeah. percent gain. I love it. It's refreshing. Cues, Mike, Sarah, thanks for joining us on Trillion. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Trillions. Until next time, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal, Bloomberg.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you'd like to listen. We'd love to hear from you. We're on Twitter. I'm at Joel Weber Show. He's at Eric Balchunas. You can find Sarah and Mike at Sarah Ponsek and at Reaganonymous. Trillions is produced by Magnus Henriksen. Francesca Levy is the head of Bloomberg Podcasts. Bye. You don't have to be a rocket scientist to help realize a mission to Mars. Become an agent of innovation with Invesco QQQ. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.